Welcome to the Sleepy Time Voice Podcast, where we will be enjoying stories to help you fall asleep. I am your host and narrator, Richard Huskison. If you would like to submit a story request, you can do so. But unless it is a personal creation, then public domain stories are preferred. If you would like to submit a story, contact us at Sleepy Time Voice, all one word, on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Don't forget to like, follow, subscribe, and leave a comment. But now, close your eyes and get ready to dream. This continues our long-form story, The Secret Garden, by Francis Hodgson Burnett. Chapter 13 I Am Colin Mary took the picture back to the house when she went to her supper, and she showed it to Martha. Eh, said Martha with great pride. I never knew our dickon was as clever as that. That there is a picture of a mussel thrush on her nest, as large as life and twice as natural. Then Mary knew Dickon had meant the picture to be a message. He had meant that she might be sure he would keep her secret. Her garden was her nest, and she was like a thrush. Oh, how she did like that queer common boy. She hoped he would come back the very next day, and she fell asleep looking forward to the morning. But you never know what the weather will do in Yorkshire, particularly in the springtime. She was awakened in the night by the sound of rain beating with heavy drops against her window. It was pouring down in torrents, and the wind was wuthering round the corners and in the chimneys of the huge old house. Mary sat up in bed and felt miserable and angry. The rain is as contrary as I ever was, she said. It came because it knew I did not want it. She threw herself back on her pillow and buried her face. She did not cry, but she lay and hated the sound of the heavy beating rain. She hated the wind and its wuthering. She could not go to sleep again. The mournful sound kept her awake because she felt mournful herself. If she had been happy, it would probably have lulled her to sleep. How it wuthered, and how the big raindrops poured down and beat against the pane. It sounds just like a person lost on the moor and wandering on and on, crying, she said. She had been lying awake, turning from side to side for about an hour when suddenly something made her sit up in bed and turn her head toward the door, listening. She listened, and she listened. It isn't the wind now, she said in a loud whisper. That isn't the wind. It is different. It is that crying I heard before. The door of her room was ajar, and the sound came down the corridor, a far-off faint sound of fretful crying. She listened for a few minutes, and each minute she became more and more sure. She felt as if she must find out what it was. It seemed even stranger than the secret garden and the buried key. Perhaps the fact that she was in a rebellious mood made her bold. She put her foot out of bed and stood on the floor. I am going to find out what it is, she said. Everybody is in bed, and I don't care about Mrs. Medlock. I don't care. There was a candle by her bedside, and she took it up and went softly out of the room. The corridor looked very long and dark, but she was too excited to mind that. 
She thought she remembered the corners she must turn to find the short corridor with the door covered with tapestry, the one Mrs. Medlock had come through the day she lost herself. The sound had come up that passage. So she went on with her dim light, almost feeling her way, her heart beating so loud she fancied she could hear it. The far-off, faint crying went on and led her. Sometimes it stopped for a moment or so and then began again. Was this the right corner to turn? She stopped and thought. Yes, it was. Down this passage, and then to the left, and then up two broad steps, and then to the right again. Yes, there was the tapestry door. She pushed it open very gently and closed it behind her, and she stood in the corridor and could hear the crying quite plainly, though it was not loud. It was on the other side of the wall at her left, and a few yards farther on there was a door. She could see a glimmer of light coming from beneath it, and someone was crying in that room, and it was quite a young someone. So she walked to the door and pushed it open, and there she was, standing in the room. It was a big room with ancient, handsome furniture in it. There was a low fire, glowing faintly on the hearth, and a nightlight burning by the side of a carved four-poster bed hung with a brocade, and on the bed was lying a boy, crying fretfully. Mary wondered if she was in a real place, or if she had fallen asleep again and was dreaming without knowing it. The boy had a sharp, delicate face the color of ivory, and he seemed to have eyes too big for it. He had also a lot of hair which tumbled over his forehead in heavy locks and made his thin face seem smaller. He looked like a boy who had been ill, but he was crying more as if he were tired and cross than if he were in pain. Mary stood near the door with her candle in her hand, holding her breath. Then she crept across the room, and as she drew nearer the light attracted the boy's attention, and he turned his head on his pillow and stared at her, his gray eyes opening so wide that they seemed immense. Who are you? he said at last in a half-frightened whisper. Are you a ghost? No, I am not, Mary answered, her own whisper sounding half-frightened. Are you one? He stared and stared and stared. Mary could not help noticing what strange eyes he had. They were a gate gray, and they looked too big for his face, because they had black lashes all round them. No, he replied, waiting a moment or so. I am Colin. Who is Colin? she faltered. I am Colin Craven. Who are you? I am Mary Lennox. Mr. Craven is my uncle. He is my father, said the boy. Your father, gasped Mary. No one ever told me he had a boy. Why didn't they? Come here, he said, still keeping his strange eyes fixed on her with an anxious expression. She came close to the bed, and he put out his hand and touched her. You are real, aren't you? he said. I have such real dreams very often. You might be one of them. Mary had slipped on a woolen wrapper before she left her room, and she put a piece of it between his fingers. Rub that and see how thick and warm it is, 
she said. I will pinch you a little, if you like, to show you how real I am. For a minute, I thought you might be a dream, too. Where did you come from? he asked. From my own room. The wind weathered, so I couldn't go to sleep, and I heard someone crying and wanted to find out who it was. What were you crying for? Because I couldn't go to sleep either, and my head ached. Tell me your name again. Mary Lennox. Did no one ever tell you I had come to live here? He was still fingering the fold of her wrapper, but he began to look a little more as if he believed in her reality. No, he answered. They daren't. Why? asked Mary. Because I should have been afraid you would see me. I won't let people see me and talk me over. Why? Mary asked again, feeling more mystified every moment. Because I am like this always, ill and having to lie down. My father won't let people talk me over either. The servants are not allowed to speak about me. If I live, I may be a hunchback, but I shan't live. My father hates to think I may be like him. Oh, what a queer house this is, Mary said. What a queer house. Everything is a kind of secret. Rooms are locked up, and gardens are locked up, and you, have you been locked up? No. I stay in this room because I don't want to be moved out of it. It tires me too much. Does your father come and see you? Mary ventured. Sometimes, generally when I'm asleep. He doesn't want to see me. Why? Mary could not help asking again. A sort of angry shadow passed over the boy's face. My mother died when I was born, and it makes him wretched to look at me. He thinks I don't know, but I've heard people talking. He almost hates me. He hates the garden because she died, Mary said, half speaking to herself. What garden? the boy asked. Oh, just, just a garden she used to like, Mary stammered. Have you been here always? Nearly always. Sometimes I have been taken to a place at the seaside, but I won't stay because people stare at me. I used to wear an iron thing to keep my back straight, but a grand doctor came from London to see me and said it was stupid. He told them to take it off and keep me out in the fresh air. I hate fresh air, and I don't want to go out. I didn't when I first came here, said Mary. Why do you keep looking at me like that? Because of the dreams that are so real, he answered rather fretfully. Sometimes when I open my eyes, I don't believe I'm awake. We're both awake, said Mary, glancing around the room with its high ceiling and shadowy corners and dim firelight. It looks quite like a dream, and it's the middle of the night, and everybody in the house is asleep. Everybody but us. We are wide awake. I don't want it to be a dream, the boy said restlessly. Mary thought of something all at once. If you don't like people to see you, she began, do you want me to go away? He still held the fold of her wrapper and gave it a little pull. No, he said. I should be sure you were a dream if you want. If you are real, sit down on that big footstool and talk. I want to hear about you. Mary put down her candle on the table near the bed and sat down on the cushioned stool. 
She did not want to go away at all. She wanted to stay in the mysterious hidden-away room and talk to the mysterious boy. What do you want me to tell you? she said. He wanted to know how long she had been at Misselthwaite. He wanted to know which corridor her room was on. He wanted to know what she had been doing. If she disliked the moor as he disliked it, where she had lived before she came to Yorkshire. She answered all these questions and many more, and he lay back on his pillow and listened. He made her tell him a great deal about India and about her voyage across the ocean. She found out that because he had been an invalid, he had not learned things as other children had. One of his nurses had taught him to read when he was quite little, and he was always reading and looking at pictures in splendid books. Though his father rarely saw him when he was awake, he was given all sorts of wonderful things to amuse himself with. He never seemed to have been amused, however. He could have anything he asked for, and was never made to do anything he did not like to do. Everyone is obliged to do what pleases me, he said indifferently. It makes me ill to be angry. No one believes I shall live to grow up. He said it as if he was so accustomed to the idea that it had ceased to matter to him at all. He seemed to like the sound of Mary's voice. As she went on talking, he listened in a drowsy, interested way. Once or twice, she wondered if he were not gradually falling into a doze. But at last, he asked a question which opened up a new subject. How old are you? he asked. I am ten, Mary answered, forgetting herself for a moment, and so are you. How do you know that? he demanded in a surprised voice. Because, when you were born, the garden door was locked, and the key was buried, and it has been locked for ten years. Colin half sat up, turning toward her, leaning on his elbows. What garden door was locked? Who did it? Where was the key buried? he exclaimed, as if he were suddenly very much interested. It, it was the garden Mr. Craven hates, Mary said nervously. He locked the door. No one, no one knew where the key was buried. What sort of a garden is it? Colin persisted eagerly. No one has been allowed to go into it for ten years, was Mary's careful answer. But it was too late to be careful. He was too much like herself. He too had had nothing to think about, and the idea of a hidden garden attracted him as it had attracted her. He asked question after question. Where was it? Had she never looked for the door? Had she never asked the gardeners? They won't talk about it, said Mary. I think they have been told not to answer questions. I would make them, said Colin. Could you? Mary faltered, beginning to feel frightened. If you could make people answer questions, who knew what might happen? Everyone is obliged to please me. I told you that, he said. If I were to live, this place would sometime belong to me. They all know that. I would make them tell me. Mary had not known that she herself had been spoiled, but she could see quite plainly that this mysterious boy had been. He thought that the whole world belonged to him. How peculiar he was, and how coolly he spoke of not living. Do you think you won't live? she asked, partly because she was curious, and partly in hope of making him forget the garden. I don't suppose I shall he answered, as indifferently as he had spoken before. Ever since I remember anything, I have heard people say I shan't. 
At first, they thought I was too little to understand, and now they think I don't hear, but I do. My doctor is my father's cousin. He is quite poor, and if I die, he will have all Misselthwaite when my father is dead. I should think he wouldn't want me to live. Do you want to live? inquired Mary. No, he answered in a cross, tired fashion. But I don't want to die. When I feel ill, I lie here and think about it until I cry and cry. I have heard you crying three times, Mary said, but I did not know who it was. Were you crying about that? She did so want him to forget the garden. I dare say, he answered. Let us talk about something else. Talk about that garden. Don't you want to see it? Yes, answered Mary, in quite a low voice. I do, he went on persistently. I don't think I ever really wanted to see anything before, but I want to see that garden. I want the key dug up. I want the door unlocked. I would let them take me there in my chair. That would be getting fresh air. I am going to make them open the door. He had become quite excited, and his strange eyes began to shine like stars, and looked more immense than ever. They have to please me, he said. I will make them take me there, and I will let you go too. Mary's hands clutched each other. Everything would be spoiled. Everything. Dickon would never come back. She would never again feel like a missile thrush with a safe hidden nest. Oh, don't, 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 don't do that, she cried out. He stared as if he thought she had gone crazy. Why? he exclaimed. You said you wanted to see it. I do, she answered almost with a sob in her throat. But if you make them open the door and take you in like that, it will never be a secret again. He leaned still farther forward. A secret, he said. What do you mean? Tell me. Mary's words almost tumbled over one another. You see, you see, she panted. If no one knows but ourselves, if there was a door hidden somewhere under the ivy, if there was, and we could find it, and if we could slip through it together and shut it behind us, and no one knew anyone was inside, and we called it our garden and pretended that, that we were missile thrushes, and it was our nest, and if we played there almost every day and dug and planted seeds and made it all come alive. Is it dead? he interrupted her. It soon will be if no one cares for it, she went on. The bulbs will live, but the roses. He stopped her again, as excited as she was herself. What are bulbs? he put in quickly. They are daffodils and lilies and snowdrops. They are working in the earth now, pushing up pale green points because the spring is coming. Is the spring coming? he said. What is it like? You don't see it in rooms if you are ill. It is the sun shining on the rain and the rain falling on the sunshine, the things pushing up and working under the earth, said Mary. If the garden was a secret and we could get into it, we could watch the things grow bigger every day and see how many roses are alive. Don't you see? Oh, don't you see how much nicer it would be if it was a secret? He dropped back on his pillow and lay there with an odd expression on his face. I never had a secret, he said. Except that one about not living to grow up. They don't know I know that, so it is a sort of a secret. But I like this kind better. If you won't make them take you to the garden, pleaded Mary, perhaps I feel almost sure I can find out how to get in sometime. And then, if the doctor wants you to go out in your chair, and if you can always do what you want to do, 
Perhaps, perhaps we might find some boy who would push you, and we could go alone, and it would always be a secret garden. I should like that, he said very slowly, his eyes looking dreamy. I should like that. I should not mind fresh air in a secret garden. Mary began to recover her breath and feel safer because the idea of keeping the secret seemed to please him. She felt almost sure that if she kept on talking and could make him see the garden in his mind as she had seen it, he would like it so much that he could not bear to think that everybody might tramp into it when they chose. I'll tell you what I think it would be like if we could go into it, she said. It has been shut up so long things have grown into a tangle, perhaps. He lay quite still and listened while she went on talking about the roses which might have clambered from tree to tree and hung down, about the many birds which might have built their nests there because it was so safe, and she told him about the robin and Ben Weatherstaff, and there was so much to tell about the robin, and it was so easy and safe to talk about it that she ceased to feel afraid. The robin pleased him so much that he smiled until he looked almost beautiful, and at first Mary had thought that he was even plainer than herself, with his big eyes and heavy locks of hair. I did not know birds could be like that, he said. But if you stay in a room, you never see things. What a lot of things you know. I feel as if you had been inside that garden. She did not know what to say, so she did not say anything. He evidently did not expect an answer, and the next moment he gave her a surprise. I am going to let you look at something, he said. Do you see that rose-colored silk curtain hanging on the wall over the mantelpiece? Mary had not noticed it before, but she looked up and saw it. It was a curtain of soft silk hanging over what seemed to be some picture. Yes, she answered. There is a cord hanging from it, said Colin. Go and pull it. Mary got up, much mystified, and found the cord. When she pulled it, the silk curtain ran back on rings, and when it ran back, it uncovered a picture. It was the picture of a girl with a laughing face. She had bright hair tied up with a blue ribbon, and her gay, lovely eyes were exactly like Colin's unhappy ones, a gate gray, and looking twice as big as they really were because of the black lashes all around them. She is my mother, said Colin complainingly. I don't see why she died. Sometimes I hate her for doing it. How queer, said Mary. If she had lived, I believe I should not have been ill always, he grumbled. I dare say I should have lived too, and my father would not have hated to look at me. I dare say I should have had a strong back. Draw the curtain again. Mary did as she was told and returned to her footstool. She is much prettier than you, she said. But her eyes are just like yours. At least, they are the same shape and color. Why is the curtain drawn over her? He moved uncomfortably. I made them do it, he said. Sometimes, I don't like to see her looking at me. She smiles too much when I am ill and miserable. Besides, she is mine, and I don't want everyone to see her. There were a few moments of silence, and then Mary spoke. 
What would Mrs. Medlock do if she found out that I had been here? She inquired. She would do as I told her to do, he answered, and I should tell her that I wanted you to come here and talk to me every day. I am glad you came. So am I, said Mary. I will come as often as I can, but she hesitated. I shall have to look every day for the garden door. Yes, you must, said Colin, and you can tell me about it afterward. He lay thinking a few minutes, as he had done before, and then he spoke again. I think you shall be a secret too, he said. I will not tell them until I find out. I can always send the nurse out of the room and say that I want to be by myself. Do you know Martha? Yes, I know her very well, said Mary. She waits on me. He nodded his head toward the outer corridor. She is the one who is asleep in the other room. The nurse went away yesterday to stay all night with her sister, and she always makes Martha attend to me when she wants to go out. Martha shall tell you when to come here. Then Mary understood Martha's troubled look when she had asked questions about the crying. Martha knew about you all the time, she said. Yes, she often attends me. The nurse likes to get away from me, and then Martha comes. I have been here a long time, said Mary. Shall I go away now? Your eyes look sleepy. I wish I could go to sleep before you leave me, he said rather shyly. Shut your eyes, said Mary, drawing her foot still closer, and I will do what my ayah used to do in India. I will pat your hand and stroke it and sing something quite low. I should like that, perhaps, he said drowsily. Somehow she was sorry for him and did not want him to lie awake, so she leaned against the bed and began to stroke and pat his hand and sing a very low little chanting song in Hindustani. That is nice, he said more drowsily still, and she went on chanting and stroking, but when she looked at him again his black lashes were lying close against his cheeks, for his eyes were shut and he was fast asleep. She got up softly, took her candle, and crept away without making a sound. The End of Chapter 13 Chapter 14 a young Raja. The moor was hidden in mist when the morning came, and the rain had not stopped pouring down. There could be no going out of doors. Martha was so busy that Mary had no opportunity of talking to her, but in the afternoon she asked her to come and sit with her in the nursery. She came bringing the stockings she was always knitting when she was doing nothing else. What's the matter with thee? she asked as soon as she sat down. It looks as if that's something to say. I have. I have found out what the crying was, said Mary. Martha let her knitting drop on her knee and gazed at her with startled eyes. The hasn't, she exclaimed. Never. I heard it in the night, Mary went on, and I got up and went to see where it came from. It was Colin. I found him. Martha's face became red with fright. Eh, Miss Mary, she said half crying. Thou shouldn't have done it. Thou shouldn't. Thou'll get me in trouble. I never told thee nothing about him. But thou'll get me in trouble. I shall lose my place, and what'll mother do? You won't lose your place, said Mary. He was glad I came. We talked and talked, and he said he was glad I came. 
Was he? cried Martha. Arthur, sure. Thou doesn't know what he's like when anything vexes him. He's a big lad to cry like a baby, but when he's in a passion, he'll fair scream just to frighten us, and he knows us daren't call our souls our own. He wasn't vexed, said Mary. I asked him if I should go away, and he made me stay. He asked me questions, and I sat on a big footstool and talked to him about India and about the robin and gardens. He wouldn't let me go. He let me see his mother's picture. Before I left him, I sang him to sleep. Martha fairly gasped with amazement. I can scarcely believe thee, she protested. It's as if thou'd walked straight into a lion's den. If he'd have been like he is most times, he'd have thrown himself into one of his tantrums and roused the house. He won't let strangers look at him. He let me look at him. I looked at him all the time, and he looked at me. We stared, said Mary. I don't know what to do, cried agitated Martha. If Mrs. Medlock finds out, she'll think I broke orders and told thee, and I shall be packed back to mother. He's not going to tell Mrs. Medlock anything about it yet. It's to be a sort of secret just at first, Mary said firmly. And he says everybody is obliged to do as he pleases. Aye, that's true enough, the bad lad, sighed Martha, wiping her forehead with her apron. He says Mrs. Medlock must, and he wants me to come and talk to him every day, and you are to tell me when he wants me. Me, said Martha. I shall lose my place. I shall for sure. You can't if you are doing what he wants you to do, and everybody is ordered to obey him, Marriott argued. That does mean to say, cried Martha with wide open eyes, that he was nice to thee. I think he almost liked me, answered Mary. Then thou must, then thou must have bewitched him, decided Martha, drawing a long breath. Do you mean magic? inquired Mary. I've heard about magic in India but I can't make it. I just went into his room, and I was so surprised to see him, I stood and stared. And then he turned round and stared at me, and he thought I was a ghost or a dream, and I thought perhaps he was. And it was so queer being there, alone together in the middle of the night, and not knowing about each other, and we began to ask each other questions, and when I asked him if I must go away, he said I must not. The world's coming to an end, gasped Martha. What is the matter with him? asked Mary. Nobody knows for sure and certain, said Martha. Mr. Craven went off his head like when he was born. The doctors thought he'd have to be put in asylum. It was because Mrs. Craven died like I told you. He wouldn't set eyes on the baby. He just raved and said it'd be another hunchback like him, and it'd better die. Is Colin a hunchback? Mary asked. He didn't look like one. He isn't yet, said Martha but he began all wrong. Mother said that there was enough trouble and raging in the house to set any child wrong. They was afraid his back was weak, and they've always been taking care of it, keeping him lying down and not letting him walk. Once they made him wear a brace, but he fretted so he was downright ill. Then a big doctor came to see him and made them take it off. He talked to the other doctor quite rough, in a polite way. He said there'd be too much medicine and too much letting him have his own way. I think he's a very spoiled boy, said Mary. He's the worst young knot as ever was, said Martha. I won't say he hasn't been ill a good bit. 
He's had coughs and colds that's nearly killed him two or three times. Once he had rheumatic fever, and once he was typhoid. Eh, Mrs. Medlock did get a fright then. He'd been out of his head, and she was talking to the nurse, thinking he didn't know nothing, and she said, He'll die this time for sure enough, and best thing for him and everybody. And she looked at him, and there he was with his big eyes open, staring at her as sensible as she was herself. She didn't know what had happened, but he just stared at her and says, You give me some water and stop talking. Do you think he will die? asked Mary. Mother says there's no reason why any child should live that gets no fresh air and doesn't do nothing but lie on his back and read picture books and take medicine. He's weak and hates the trouble of being taken out of doors, and he gets cold so easy he says it makes him ill. Mary sat and looked at the fire. I wonder, she said slowly, if it would not do him good to go out into a garden and watch things growing. It did me good. One of the worst fits he ever had, said Martha, was one time they took him out where the roses is by the fountain. He'd been reading a paper about people getting something he called rose cold, and he began to sneeze and said he'd got it, and then a new gardener, as didn't know the rules, passed by and looked at him curious. He threw himself into a passion, and he said he'd looked at him because he was going to be a hunchback. He cried himself into a fever and was ill all night. If he ever gets angry at me, I'll never go and see him again, said Mary. He'll have thee if he wants thee, said Martha. Thou may as well know that at the start. Very soon afterward, a bell rang, and she rolled up her knitting. I dare say the nurse wants me to stay with him a bit, she said. I hope he's in a good temper. She was out of the room about ten minutes, and then she came back with a puzzled expression. Well, the has bewitched him, she said. He's up on his sofa with his picture books. He's told the nurse to stay away until six o'clock. I'm to wait in the next room. The minute she was gone, he called me to him and says, I want Mary Lennox to come and talk to me, and remember, you're not to tell anyone. You'd better go as quick as you can. Mary was quite willing to go quickly. She did not want to see Colin as much as she wanted to see Dickon, but she wanted to see him very much. There was a bright fire on the hearth when she entered his room, and in the daylight she saw it was a very beautiful room indeed. There were rich colors in the rugs and hangings and pictures and books on the walls which made it look glowing and comfortable even, in spite of the gray sky and falling rain. Colin looked rather like a picture himself. He was wrapped in a velvet dressing gown and sat against a big brocaded cushion. He had a red spot on each cheek. Come in, he said. I've been thinking about you all morning. I've been thinking about you too, answered Mary. You don't know how frightened Martha is. She says Mrs. Medlock will think she told me about you, and then she will be sent away. He frowned. Go and tell her to come here, he said. She's in the next room. Mary went and brought her back. Poor Martha was shaking in her shoes. Colin was still frowning. Have you to do what I please, or have you not? he demanded. I have to do what pleases you, sir, 
Martha faltered, turning quite red. Has Medlock to do what I please? Everybody has, sir, said Martha. Well, then, if I order you to bring Miss Mary to me, how can Medlock send you away if she finds out? Please don't let her, sir, pleaded Martha. I'll send her away if she dares to say a word about such a thing, said Master Craven grandly. She wouldn't like that, I can tell you. Thank you, sir, bobbing a curtsy. I want to do my duty, sir. What I want is your duty, said Colin more grandly still. I'll take care of you. Now go away. When the door closed behind Martha, Colin found Mistress Mary gazing at him as if he had set her wondering. Why do you look at me like that? he asked her. What are you thinking about? I am thinking about two things. What are they? Sit down and tell me. This is the first one, said Mary, seating herself on the big stool. Once in India, I saw a boy who was a Raja. He had rubies and emeralds and diamonds stuck all over him. He spoke to his people just as you spoke to Martha. Everybody had to do everything he told them. In a minute. I think they would have been killed if they hadn't. I shall make you tell me about Rajas presently, he said. But first, tell me what the second thing was. I was thinking, said Mary, how different you are from Dickon. Who is Dickon? he said. What a queer name. She might as well tell him, she thought. She could talk about Dickon without mentioning the secret garden. She had liked to hear Martha talk about him. Besides, she longed to talk about him. It would seem to bring him nearer. He is Martha's brother. He is twelve years old, she explained. He is not like anyone else in the world. He can charm foxes and squirrels and birds, just as the natives in India charm snakes. He plays a very soft tune on a pipe, and they come and listen. There were some big books on a table at his side, and he dragged one suddenly toward him. There is a picture of a snake charmer in this, he exclaimed. Come and look at it. The book was a beautiful one, with superb colored illustrations, and he turned to one of them. Can he do that? he asked eagerly. He played on his pipe, and they listened, Mary explained. But he doesn't call it magic. He says it's because he lives on the moor so much, and he knows their ways. He says he feels sometimes as if he was a bird, or a rabbit himself. He likes them so. I think he asked the robin questions. It seemed as if they talked to each other in soft chirps. Colin lay back on his cushions, and his eyes grew larger and larger, and the spots on his cheeks burned. Tell me some more about him, he said. He knows all about eggs and nests, Mary went on, and he knows where foxes and badgers and otters live. He keeps them secret so that other boys won't find their holes and frighten them. He knows about everything that grows or lives on the moor. Does he like the moor? said Colin. How can he, when it's such a great, bare, dreary place? It's the most beautiful place, protested Mary. Thousands of lovely things grow on it, and there are thousands of little creatures all busy building nests and making holes and burrows and chirpering or singing or squeaking to each other. They are so busy and have such fun under the earth or in the trees or heather, it's their world. How do you know all that? said Colin, turning on his elbow to look at her. 
I have never been there once, really, said Mary, suddenly remembering. I only drove over it in the dark. I thought it was hideous. Martha told me about it at first, and then Dickon. When Dickon talks about it, you feel as if you saw things and heard them, as if you were standing in the heather with the sun shining and the gorse smelling like honey, and all full of bees and butterflies. You never see anything if you are ill, said Colin restlessly. He looked like a person listening to a new sound in the distance and wondering what it was. You can't if you stay in a room, said Mary. I couldn't go on the moor, he said in a resentful tone. Mary was silent for a minute, and then she said something bold. You might, sometime. He moved as if he were startled. Go on the moor? How could I? I am going to die. How do you know? said Mary unsympathetically. She didn't like the way he had talked about dying. She did not feel very sympathetic. She felt rather as if he almost boasted about it. Oh, I have heard it ever since I remember, he answered crossly. They are always whispering about it and thinking I don't notice. They wish I would, too. Mistress Mary felt quite contrary. She pinched her lips together. If they wished I would, she said, I wouldn't. Who wishes you would? The servants, and of course Dr. Craven, because he would get Misselthwaite and be rich instead of poor. He daren't say so, but he always looks cheerful when I am worse. When I had typhoid fever, his face got quite fat. I think my father wishes it too. Don't believe he does, said Mary quite obstinately. That made Colin turn and look at her. Don't you? he said and he lay back on his cushions and was still, as if he were thinking, and there was quite a long silence. Perhaps they were both of them thinking strange things children do not usually think of. I like the Grand Doctor from London, because he made them take the iron thing off, said Mary at last. Did he say you were going to die? No. What did he say? He didn't whisper, Colin answered. Perhaps he knew I hated whispering. I heard him say one thing quite aloud. He said, The lad might live, if he would make up his mind to it. Put him in the humor. It sounded as if he was in a temper. I'll tell you who would put you in the humor, perhaps, said Mary, reflecting. She felt as if she would like this thing to be settled one way or the other. I believe Dickon would. He's always talking about live things. He never talks about dead things or things that are ill. He's always looking up in the sky to watch birds flying, or looking down at the earth to see something growing. He has such round blue eyes, and they are so wide open with looking about, and he laughs such a big laugh with his wide mouth, and his cheeks are as red, as red as cherries. She pulled her stool nearer to the sofa, and her expression quite changed at the remembrance of the wide curving mouth and wide open eyes. See here, she said. Don't let us talk about dying. I don't like it. Let us talk about living. Let us talk and talk about Dickon, and then we will look at your pictures. It was the best thing she could have said. To talk about Dickon meant to talk about the moor, and about the cottage, and the fourteen people who lived in it, on sixteen shillings a week, and the children who got fat on the moor grass like the wild ponies, 
and about Dickens' mother, and the skipping rope, and the moor with the sun on it, and about pale green points sticking up out of the black sod, and it was all so alive that Mary talked more than she had ever talked before, and Colin both talked and listened as if he had never done either before, and they both began to laugh over nothings as children will when they are happy together, and they laughed so that in the end they were making as much noise as if they had been two ordinary, healthy, natural ten-year-old creatures, instead of a hard little unloving girl and a sickly boy who believed that he was going to die. They enjoyed themselves so much that they forgot the pictures, and they forgot about the time. They had been laughing quite loudly over Ben Weatherstaff and his robin, and Colin was actually sitting up as if he had forgotten about his weak back when he suddenly remembered something. Do you know there is one thing we have never once thought of? He said, We are cousins. It seemed so queer that they had talked so much and never remembered this simple thing that they laughed more than ever because they had got into the humor to laugh at anything. And in the midst of the fun, the door opened, and in walked Dr. Craven and Mrs. Medlock. Dr. Craven started in an actual alarm, and Mrs. Medlock almost fell back because he had accidentally bumped against her. "'Good Lord!' exclaimed poor Mrs. Medlock, with her eyes almost starting out of her head. "'Good Lord!' "'What is this?' said Dr. Craven, coming forward. "'What does it mean?' Then Mary was reminded of the boy Raja again. Colin answered as if neither the doctor's alarm nor Mrs. Medlock's terror was of the slightest consequence. He was as little disturbed or frightened as if an elderly cat and dog walked into the room. "'This is my cousin, Mary Lennox,' he said. "'I asked her to come and talk to me. I like her. She must come and talk to me whenever I send for her.' Dr. Craven turned reproachfully to Mrs. Medlock. "'Oh, sir,' she panted. I don't know how it's happened. There was not a servant on the place that dared to talk. They all have their orders. Nobody told her anything, said Colin. She heard me crying and found me herself. I am glad she came. Don't be silly, Medlock. Mary saw that Dr. Craven did not look pleased, but it was quite plain that he dare not oppose his patient. He sat down by Colin and felt his pulse. I am afraid there has been too much excitement. Excitement is not good for you, my boy, he said. I should be excited if she kept away, answered Colin, his eyes beginning to look dangerously sparkling. I am better. She makes me better. The nurse must bring her up tea with mine. We will have tea together. Mrs. Medlock and Dr. Craven looked at each other in a troubled way, but there was evidently nothing to be done. He does look rather better, sir ventured Mrs. Medlock, but, thinking the matter over, he looked better this morning before she came into the room. She came into the room last night. She stayed with me a long time. She sang a Hindustani song to me and made me go to sleep, said Colin. I was better when I wakened up. I wanted my breakfast. I want my tea now. Tell nurse, Medlock. Dr. Craven did not stay very long. He talked to the nurse for a few minutes when she came into the room, and said a few words of warning to Colin. He must not talk too much. He must not forget that he was ill. He must not forget that he was very easily tired. 
Mary thought there seemed to be a number of uncomfortable things he was not to forget. Colin looked fretful and kept his strange black-lashed eyes fixed on Dr. Craven's face. I want to forget it, he said at last. She makes me forget it. That's why I want her. Dr. Craven did not look happy when he left the room. He gave a puzzled glance at the little girl sitting on the large stool. She had become a stiff, silent child again as soon as he entered, and he could not see what the attraction was. The boy actually did look brighter, however, and he sighed rather heavily as he went down the corridor. They are always wanting me to eat things when I don't want to, said Colin, as the nurse brought in the tea and put it on the table by the sofa. Now, if you'll eat, I will. Those muffins look so nice and hot. Tell me about Rajas. The End of Chapter 14 Thank you so much for listening, and I hope you enjoyed The Secret Garden by Francis Hodgson Burnett. If you are still not quite sleepy, there is another story waiting for you on Sleepy Time Voice Podcast. Don't forget, we are on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and you can support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash sleepytimevoice. You are always welcome here. You are loved, and good night.